you've been following us in the series in John, you will notice that we have jumped back seven chapters. We were at the end of chapter 19, and you go, wait a minute, that was chapter 12. Why are we back there? Uh, well, we're doing it for a very specific purpose. Um, while this is seven chapters earlier in John's gospel, it's actually only one week earlier in the series of events that's being recounted here. And one of the things that historically the church has done is that the Sunday before Easter is when we, it's called Palm Sunday. It's when we go back to this event, which is the triumphal entry of Jesus in Jerusalem. When he comes in and the, the people take a palm fronds like here and say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they celebrate Jesus coming into the city and, and it sets up all of the series of events over the next week that we've actually been walking through over the last few months. And so this begins what's called Holy Week. Holy Week. A week in which the church looks forward to the death and the resurrection of Jesus on Easter morning. And, and part of the reason also why we are doing this is because what we're going to see is we're going to see what's actually underneath everything else we've seen. We, we've been looking at the denials of Jesus, the mockery of Jesus, the condemnation of Jesus, the contempt towards Jesus, the betrayal of Jesus, all of these things. And what we're going to see here is what's underneath all of it. What we could say is the lead domino to all of it. And that lead domino, that first thing, is misunderstanding. A misunderstanding, a fundamental misunderstanding of the life that God has promised us and the life that God has called us to, if we're to follow him. Uh, misunderstanding means this, it, one, a failure to understand something correctly, or two, a disagreement or quarrel. And I know when I say uh, disagreement, or, or sorry, misunderstanding, you go, wow, we've been using these like level 10 words, right? Like a 9 or a 10 out of 10, like mockery, contempt. You're like, ooh, okay. And then I come up here and I'm like, well, you know what's underneath all of it? Misunderstanding, right? You're like, it doesn't seem as serious on one level, right? It doesn't come with that kind of visceral response right away. But what happens when we have a fundamental misunderstanding of something, the promises that someone has made? When we fill in things with assumptions, we elevate expectations, we have assumptions about what will happen and then they don't happen, and what happens inevitably, like the definition says, is it leads to disagreement, it leads to conflict. It leads to broken relationships, it leads to disappointment, it leads to strife, it leads to all kinds of things. As we'll see, it leads to the rejection of Jesus, as we've seen over the last few weeks with the denial of Jesus, the contempt towards Jesus, the mockery of Jesus' claims to be king. In other words, disagreement, or, or sorry, misunderstanding is the lead domino that leads to all these other things. Uh, misunderstanding is, is massive. I remember the first time in life when I really it hit me that I had a fundamental misunderstanding of something, something that I thought I understood, and I realized I didn't, and that was when I got about, I don't know, 12 hours into being married, <laughs> and we all laugh because we all know where this is going, right? Because I, I got into it, it's like, yes, you know, I had just said vows to death do us part, in richer or poorer, in sickness and in health. 
And I have proceeded for the last, this summer will be 14 years, I have proceeded for the last 14 years learning what those words really mean, right? There are these things where all of a sudden I realize I had this idea, and I don't know what, you know, it's almost like I, I pictured Lauren and I, it's like you get married, and your life is this endless kind of bounding through a field, golden field. It's the golden hour, right? And I remember, you know, it's like always the golden hour. We're both on unicorns, right? Horseback gallivanting through, holding hands. You're the fairest maiden of them all. No, you're the most, you're the strongest man. I've always sought you my entire life. It's not really what my, that wasn't really my daydream. But you get the idea. We have this idea. We think and we go, yeah, 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 there'll be all these things. Marriage is hard. We say all this. And then I realized all of a sudden, like, wow. I had a fundamental misunderstanding, and oftentimes a lot of the things are this misunderstanding of what it means for two people to build a life together and having to die to myself and on and on and on. But here's the thing. Whether it's in our marriages, whether it's in our careers, whether it's with our our health, whether it's all kinds of things that we'll explore, misunderstanding is the lead domino that sets up all kinds of conflict. But here's the thing today that Jesus is going to press us on. What happens when that fundamental misunderstanding is at the the starting place, at the core of our relationship with God? It it starts a domino effect on everything else in our relationship with God, but also a domino effect in all kinds of areas in our life. And so what Jesus wants today is he wants us to have a right understanding of who he is, a right understanding of the promises that he's made to us, a right understanding of the call that he's placed upon us. His people. So first what we're going to look at is the misunderstanding. What's the nature of this misunderstanding? What's the, what's the nature of, of this misunderstanding of who God is and the promises He's made to us? Second, the correction. How does Jesus correct this and help us see it? And then third, the key to right understanding. The key to right understanding. Let's pray and we'll jump in. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, these are timeless dynamics and you have spoken timelessly and eternally through your word. And so, Lord, we are thankful and grateful. Spirit, would you illumine our minds, help us to see, uh, prepare our hearts to be fertile soil for your word. And Lord, may this be uh, the, the lead domino that can be misunderstanding and the effects it has in our life. Lord, could this be a right understanding and be a lead domino in bringing healing and restoration. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the triumphal entry is, is one of the few events that's actually found in all of the Gospels. There, there are only a handful of events that are actually in all four of the Gospels. So whenever there's an event that's in all four Gospels, it means it's a very significant event. It signals something. Um, now, interestingly, John's recounting here is actually the sparsest of all four Gospels and their, their level of detail, their recounting of details. Um, it's the sparsest. So John seems to have stripped this scene and what, what's being communicated through it down to its most base details. It's focused like a laser. So look at verses 12 and 13. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. So what are the people doing here? Well, as we've seen, this, because it's the beginning again, it's, a, it's going back a week, uh, the, the occasion, the festival was Passover. And so there have been tens of thousands, if not more, 
of crowds. The, the, the city is packed, brimming with people who've traveled from all over. And so this large crowd, all these people have heard of Jesus, and, and they've heard of the miracles. They've, they've heard of, of, of the healings. This is right after the resurrection of Lazarus. And if you remember, the first 12 chapters of John's gospel are actually almost formulaic, where you have seven significant healings, and it's miracles. And when they see the miracles, they see the glory of God, and they believe. And so John's whole gospel has been see the miracle, see what he does, see how he heals, see how he forgives, see this message that he's spreading, this power that he's coming with, this new life, this new reality, and all the people are hearing about it because they're seeing the glory of God in it and they're drawn to him. And so now at this point, they've all drawn and they're waiting and you can imagine everybody's whispering, have you heard about him? Have you heard about this Jesus? And now Jesus is entering into the, into Jerusalem. We're going to come back to that entry, but, but what happens here is we have a picture of what the people, their understanding of what Jesus is bringing, their assumptions, and it comes in the form of how they're celebrating his arrival. The palm branches, and, and some of these I hit a few months ago when actually I, I hit this scene and, and didn't spend a ton of time on it, but these, the palm branches were actually something that had been kind of inaugurated as a cultural symbol about 200 years earlier, uh, there, there was this rebellion where, where Jerusalem was, or the Jews were kind of under the, the thumb of another nation, and, and the, this group called the Maccabees were raised up, and they're kind of like warriors. They were faithful Jews, but they were also warriors who, were, uh, who, who fought to liberate the nation. So here's what a commentator sums up what's happening here, D.A. Carson. He says this, he says, from about two centuries earlier, palm branches had already become a national symbol. When Simon the Maccabee drove the Syrian forces out of the Jerusalem citadel, he was feted with music and the waving of palm branches. It signaled nationalistic hope that a messianic liberator was arriving on the scene. So you see what the people at this point, they have an assumption that Jesus, largely for them, it was like political power, it was this liberation, and so when they come with this form, by this point, palm branches were on coins, palm branches were seen as a symbol of, you are a mighty warrior king. And so they're saying, yes, you're the liberator, you're the king, new life will begin now. And here's the thing, they were correct, but not in the way that they thought, not fully in the way that they thought because they have a misunderstanding of what it meant for Jesus' kingdom, his reign to arrive. They misunderstood what he was promising. And here, what they do is they bring their misplaced expectations and assumptions that they expect Jesus to fulfill. In fact, if you think through what we've seen, if you've been following over the last few weeks, we've seen how those assumptions percolate up all over the place, percolate up. They have assumptions about... We could put it under the category of prosperity. Maybe it was financial prosperity, peace, cessation of war, political power. All these were swimming in their minds. And the thing is that oftentimes we have those same things. We bring all kinds of assumptions to what does it mean that Jesus, that God's reign has arrived on the scene in our life. Before exploring that, though, here, here's the thing. One of the things that's at the core of Scripture is that an assumption we should have is that actually in this life, 
even under the reign of God, that we will still have trouble, we'll still have pain. And in fact, all of the things that we often assume come with God's reign in our life, that will be free of all those things, free of difficulty, free of trouble, free of strife. But in fact, at the core of Scripture, what it tells us is that God promises us that actually in this life we will have difficulty. In fact, it's actually by design. Um, last week when we were looking at how the people, the, the soldiers, and how we tend to mock God's claims to be, well, God, <laughs> to be king, that fundamentally what happened in, in the garden was that God had designed a world where it's God, man, creation. And, and in the fall, what we do is we, we actually assume, no, we should be God, and what actually happens is it flips. This is, this, this is the story of the Bible, the story of the world, what has gone wrong, which is we flip it and we go, no, 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 actually we'll be over God, but actually what happens is it ends up being creation, man, God. Instead of worshiping God and then the things of the world and the things of creation being things we can use to worship God and cultivate for His glory, instead what we do is we actually worship the created things, we worship fleeting and finite things, and we actually use religion and God as a way to frame it. We use religion in an empty way as a way to actually glorify ourselves and pursue those things. So God does something interesting with that being the reality. God gives curses. You've probably heard of them. Uh, but God, he, he curses the serpent, but he also curses the toil of man. He says, your life and your work will be filled with thorns and thistles. God then curses labor and says to the woman, if life will only be brought forth through painful labor. Well, man, that's, that's harsh. But what's interesting there is there's, there's actually a silver, silver lining in the curse, and there's a reason why they're there. See, they have been told in Genesis 2, I think Genesis 2.19, if when you eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, when you say, no, thank you, God, we will be in charge. If you ever do that, then you will die. That's what it says. Adam and Eve have been told that. So they hide and they flee from God because they go, well, we, we did it, now we will die. But what does God do? God says, you've unleashed death in the world. You've unleashed this new reality, this brokenness. But instead of immediately eliminating you, annihilating you, and ending this whole thing, I will restore what's lost. And what I will do in order to restore what's lost is that because now creation, you will worship that thing, what I'm going to do is I'm going to curse. See, life now can still come forward through pain, yes, but there will be life. Provision for life will come through thorns and thistles, but you will be able to provide for life. It's a silver lining. But as you do so, I will also force you to face what has fundamentally gone wrong. See, life in this world will be cursed where when you are tempted to worship creation, you're tempted to worship your career, you're tempted to worship your, your spouse or your boyfriend or girlfriend, you're tempted to worship uh, your, uh, your, your approval socially and your social media presence, whatever it is in different generations, we've done it in different ways. You'll be forced to uh, uh, deal with the fact and face face to face, that when you think you're strong, you're full of vigor, that your body will age and it will eventually die. You'll become feeble. You will have illness and sickness. 
what God in his wisdom is doing there is when we want to worship creation, what we do again and again is we come up against as we try to find in the things of this world life and we try to replace God with those things and find that salvation, we come face to face again and again every day with the thorns and thistles of life and the painful labor of relationships with the fact that we are not God and we are finite and we actually can't save ourselves. In other words, every day we're reminded that we need a true liberator, we need a true savior. And we can't find that salvation in this world, ultimately. And so what God does then is he promises them, he sends them from the garden. He sends them out into a world of thorns and thistles, out into a world of painful labor. He sends them from his presence, saying, one day I will restore the fullness of my presence with you. But when he sends them from that garden, from his presence, he sends them with promises. And those promises are that in the midst of the thorns and thistles of life and the painful labor of life, I am working a redemption. And one day I will come to you. I will restore my presence in your life. I'll restore my kingdom. I'll restore your hearts. I will restore your souls and I will heal you. So that's what... In the midst of this life, see, God has never promised what we could call prosperity. God has promised his presence. We, we see terms in Scripture like blessedness where God does promise, hey, if you, if you don't get up every day and you sleep in and you don't go to work, like, it's not going to go well for you, right? But if you get up and you work hard, you'll probably be able to make a living. Like, there, there's this term called blessedness. And, and what that term in Scripture means is not immediately, formulaically, if you do this, then you get prosperity. But what it's saying is, first and foremost, blessedness is having peace in the presence of God in your life. And then all these things are secondary. And no matter the circumstances of your life, illness, risk, Riches, poverty, whatever it is, you will still have this blessedness because you'll have God. It never was about all the prosperity. That wasn't the first thing. It was God's presence was the promise. And the history of Israel, though, is the history of how they misunderstood that promise. They thought it was prosperity politically, financially, and God's presence became an afterthought. Over and over again, they expected different kind of species or ideas of prosperity. And here's the thing. It's not so different from what we do, right? We, we tend to read the Old Testament and go, oh, those silly, silly Israelites, right? We're so much better as modern people. But we're, if we're honest, we're just the same. That we tend to, instead of God's presence, we tend to seek health, wealth, happiness, right? That's kind of the modern thing. And we bring all kinds of misunderstandings. A, a few common misunderstandings. I don't remember if I don't think I actually gave the slide for this, but a few common misunderstandings. One, we have misunderstandings of the promises of God in terms of our relationships. We tend to think, think of relationships, think of material, and think of cultural. Those are just three simple categories. We tend to think that relationships should be free of strife, right? How I describe like marriage or how we describe like work, how we describe with our children or with our parents, how we describe our friends, how we describe relationships in the church. We tend to assume that God has made promises that everything will be with ease. We also tend to have assumed that God has made promises materially, whether it's financial whether it's with our, our bodies and our physical health, we tend to assume that God has made promises that all those things we will just have an abundance. Cultural relevance is the third category. 
right? That we'd have cultural power, that we would have uh, more influence than others, maybe just that the culture would live and reinforce kind of our way of life or behavior or mores or whatnot. And, and here's the thing, how do, we, how do we get to that misunderstanding? What's its effect? I, I was thinking about this progress, like how this progression affects us in our everyday life. That when we have these misunderstandings of what God has promised us, how it actually is a lead domino that affects everything. So let's, four steps, quickly. The first is that we often will assume a promise, right? It's usually something, I, I want something, I desire something, I long for something, and it's something like, I was trying to think through an example of mine, and actually a friend of mine gave it to me earlier this week, because he said to me, this is a good friend, he said to me, he said, Matt, I think you have this idea that your life will be filled with relational ease. And I was like, shut up. No, I, I, I was like, okay, tell me more. And, and I realized, so I'm, I'm just going to, like right now, this is a therapy session for me. Thank you. Uh, so I, I assume the promises, I will never have relational strife. Everything will be easy in my life. For whatever reason, that's one for me. There are times when it's material abundance. There are times when it's physical health. But I've realized this one for me. And then what happens is I assume a promise. And the second step is, then what I do is I'll tend to be disappointed with God. Deep down, what I, I end up being is I'm disappointed with God because why am I having constant strife or conflict? Why do these, and really a lot of times it's misunderstandings, it's miscommunication, it's just like, why does this keep happening? And so this low-level kind of simmer begins in my soul, but I don't at that point realize it's actually being projected at the heavens. And what happens is internally then there becomes this kind of misalignment. Because I, I live in a way that I go, I think I should have these things, and I'm living this way, when over here, it's like, God's like, I never promised you that. And so when I want to live in a way that I'm going, I'm demanding this, and I want to find this thing, when at the same time, deep down, I know, like, actually, that's, not, that's just not reality. That's what life in a fallen world, thorns and thistles, labor, all these things are part of it. But here's the kicker, the fourth step. I will then not only be disappointed with God, but then it will usually extend outward to others. I'll project. What I'll do is I'll demand of other people in my life, other institutions or things in my life, that they give me what fundamentally God won't. And I get annoyed, I get disappointed, I get angry, I get bitter because others aren't giving me what God never promised me. But here's the thing, you or, or my, my wife or my children or my family or my friends or, or I don't know, some post on Twitter will, will be the thing that is right there in front of me, reminding me tangibly every day, nothing is with that level of ease. But we bring that conflict, and what happens is we demand of other individuals these things. We have a misunderstanding of what God has fundamentally promised us, but we demand of it from other people. And as I was thinking about this, I just wrote this down. Honestly, guys, this was kind of a chaotic week behind the scenes. And uh, I said it's, it's spring break, but there's kind of like, I'm not sure if it wasn't like a spring breakdown. Um, and so it's like some of you are like, that's my life. That was my spring break, right? And so I'm just going to read something I'd written because I didn't have as much time to iron this out. But I think you'll resonate with it and go, there's something there that I think for all of us, we go, I feel that right now. I wrote this. I said, I wonder if the rapidly changing times which have resulted, this is, I don't have it here, but this would be Matt Denning's diary entry, okay? I wonder if the rapidly changing times which have resulted in the church losing its cultural influence is the reason why at the same time critique has risen within the church. 
division, fighting, disappointment. Because we are facing the fact that God did not promise us ultimate prosperity, power, peace in this life. Like we're really right now, guys, as Christians, if we had this idea that we would culturally always be on the ascendant and everything was just going to be easy for us, then right now we are coming face to face with disappointment with God, but it's going horizontal. However, the people in the church are merely the place where we will come face to face with that reality. The unavoidable reality of our misunderstanding, we will have conflict, disappointment, trouble. But rather than dealing with our misplaced and assumed expectations with God, we claim those people have failed us. When in fact, we are projecting upon them our disappointment with God himself. Am I disappointed with them, angry at them, because I have misunderstood the life God has promised? I had to chew on that. And one of the things that I think right now is happening in families, it's happening in workplaces, it's ha- not just that's, you know, it happens in the church, it happens in all these places, because I think right now what we're doing is we're actually dealing with our deep disappointment with God, and it's surfacing in grumbling and anger and bitterness horizontally. Exodus 16, 8, when they grumble in the desert, the people of God, Moses says something very wise. He says to them, when the crowd comes to him, he says, your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. And I find so many times those words are so convicting because I will find I am grumbling horizontally when in fact there's this deep disappointment or anger towards God because it started with a misunderstanding of the life that he actually promised. And so the question is, what promises do we assume God has made? I've been wrestling with this a lot. What what promises have I just built all of these assumptions on that God has made? And they're all misunderstandings. What are those assumed promises? And, And here's the thing. Most likely, if you start with where the conflict or the disappointment or the anger is surfacing your life, you actually can usually work your way back. So we need a correction. Okay, so Jesus, the correction. What does Jesus do here? Look at, so again, what, what the, the misunderstanding does, the importance of it is it's not only vertical with God, but then it extends horizontally in our lives, okay? So then the correction. Look what Jesus does in verse 14 and 15. Uh, it says, and Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. So what is Jesus doing here? Well, what he's doing is he's making a statement. He's actually correcting their misunderstanding. So they have this idea of a great warrior king coming in. Normally, this would have been a military procession. Um, This would have been with full regalia. They would have had the cape on. They would have been on a huge war horse, right? Like one of those Clydesdales that you can go see near here, right? And they're up on a horse like that, and it's coming by. You know, it's got its legs out like a noble steed, right? And it comes by, and it's snorting, right? clopping and trumpets are playing, hundred thousand soldiers around them, behind them, blowing trumpets, trumpets with swords. It's kind of like the modern one is that, that entrance, you know, of like Aladdin, right? When like they come in and it's like, da, dee, da, 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 and everyone's like, you know, got the ribbons and they're doing, you know, like the hula hoop people or I don't know what it is, but they're, they're doing all this stuff and it's this magical event and you're like, yes, because we see that and we go, what do we do? We go, That matches my expectations. That matches what I expect in my life. Power, prestige. 
and you can imagine all the people. They're thinking if Jesus is doing all this, they know the rumors, like, here he comes. And you can imagine they're like, he's coming. And they're all like, like get ready, we got the palm branches. They're like, here comes the leader, here comes the victor. And then Jesus slowly comes up over the hill. And they're like, here he comes. That'd be a little faster. Here he comes. And they realize, oh, he's moving slow because he's on a donkey. And slowly he comes, his feet probably in sandals dragging on the ground, a baby donkey. And, and, and his feet, as they're dragging, then this donkey is kind of going through, you know, hee-haw, like it's Eeyore, right? Like <laughs> you wrote it on an Eeyore, and he comes in, and he's just kind of Eeyore. The disciples, probably dirty feet. No military, no swords, no anything, and they come by. They're just kind of walking around, and everyone's like, Hosanna, right? Is this the guy? I thought. <laughs> and then the disciples are like behind me, like, hey, like maybe they have some candy. I don't know. Like, it's true. The kids, get the kids some candy, right? Uh, <laughs> this is exactly the opposite of what they expected. And Jesus did it purposefully to correct their misunderstanding because he is a liberator he is the king but not how we expect it's all in the prophecy because in the prophecy that's given here from Zechariah 9 it's a prophecy about how God's king will conquer our ultimate enemy death it says this rejoice greatly o daughter of zion shout aloud o daughter of jerusalem behold your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation is he humble and mounted on a donkey on a coal on the fowl of a donkey i will cut off the chariot from ephraim and the war horse from jerusalem wait a minute we're ready for a war horse so i'm actually going to put an end to all that and the battle bow shall be cut off battle a bow that was like the Learjet or what, not Learjet, but like an F-16 of the first century and warfare. And he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall come, be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Your ultimate enemy is not your neighbor. It is not your circumstances. It is not any of these things. Your ultimate enemy is that you have been separated from God and only by blood being shed can death be conquered and you restored to relationship with him. And this king will do that. The disciples are perplexed by Jesus' actions, but then if you look, next verse, verse 16, they understand later. They understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things have been written about him and have been done to him. It wasn't until his death and resurrection that they go, I get it now. I understand why he did it. They realize Jesus didn't come to conquer just nations, but he does come with power and he does conquer only in a different way. Jesus didn't, and he didn't come to ascend to worldly forms of power, but he came with power to ascend to a cross and die a humble death. As we've seen, and Jesus will go on this year with the next few chapters, why? Because Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If we misunderstand that, Jesus is correcting a misunderstanding. When we have an idea that Jesus' kingdom is of this world, that we'll have a perfect life in this world, 
relational, material, cultural, we will be disappointed. In the triumphal entry, Jesus is correcting our misunderstandings of the kingdom. Their misunderstanding, our misunderstandings. And here's, here's how I think this plays out, because I, I think every new situation in life, let me use this almost in an allegorical way. We have new seasons of life, right? Like a lot of us in here obviously have young kids. <laughs> you enter that season of life. You enter marriage. You enter college. You enter a career. You enter a season of, of ill health. You enter these seasons of life and circumstances and situations. And imagine that in that moment of life, you have a new moment, a new layer of the onion in your soul of your expectations of what the promises of God are in your life. And it's like in that moment, you're going, Hosanna, liberator, here he comes. And God rolls rolls into your life. He rolls into that situation. He rolls into it, and it feels like all you got was hee-haw, right? What Jesus is saying, because often we think that that perfection will come now, and often it doesn't. And what Jesus is saying here is that it's not that sometimes God doesn't when empower, move, and change circumstances and do these things. But what happens is oftentimes we take that disappointment and one, it goes horizontally to others and we try to demand of them what only God can give us. But also what Jesus is saying here is in that moment, do you, do you see the ultimate promise has always been my presence? It's always been me. And, and it's not that God doesn't change circumstances, that God doesn't heal. God often does, and I think God takes great delight in that. But here's the thing. God doesn't take care of circumstances in our life and say, we can separate. We won't, I won't be present in your life. You won't have the peace of knowing my presence, and it will be fine. God always, always, always prioritizes us drawing near to him, and then God prioritizes taking care of the circumstances of our lives. He wants us to know his reign means his presence and the peace of his presence in our life first and foremost. So we never lose it because we get the gifts and we just go, thank you, I'm good in this world. He's preparing us for an eternal life with him. So lastly, the key to right understanding, how do we, how do we, what do we do with those moments? Verse 15 is phrased very interesting. It says, fear not, daughter of, Jeru or daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now, what's interesting here is there are two things, if you catch it, right next to each other. Fear not. The king is coming. Right? The, the king, fear not. That means I shouldn't have fear. This is the God of heaven and earth. This is the God of hurricanes. The God of heaven and hell. The God of history. Fear not. We're supposed to be able to have that kind of peace. We can rest secure in God's power. And then on the other hand, <laughs> he's coming on a donkey. How can I fear not when you come in this form? Because what he's saying here is you have a God who both you can trust is that powerful God, the creator of heaven and earth. And at the same time, he comes here and he does in a way where he comes humble so he can conquer our ultimate enemy death. And then you and I can approach him. Behold, here he comes. And when we hear that, we don't have to say, uh-oh, 
but he draws near in a way that actually deals with our brokenness, and he says, come to me. Power and presence together. He promises, God promises that he will be present but he will be present as God. He doesn't premise or promise that he's going to be present like a genie. He's God, not a genie. He's not just in our life, just a kind of wishful thinking and just to reinforce our thinking. He doesn't come into our life like a genie or like a guru. He's not just here to give us our best life now, and that's kind of all it's about, where you just go on your way, but he's coming as God so we would know his power and we would know his presence, which is our ultimate Need, but how does that happen? We come and approach him and entrust him with our longings. You know, throughout this, the last few weeks, and this is where we're ending, the last few weeks, since this very scene in John's gospel, we, we've been looking at this call again and again. This is actually where we've been, this phrase, death equals gain. The ultimate call in our lives if we're following Jesus is it mean death equals gain. I know it's horrible PR, right? You're like, that doesn't sell. And you're like, it's the call, which is that we will, if you attempt to find your life in this world, you will lose it. But if you lose your life and you follow Christ, you will find it. And ultimately, at the beginning, at the, the first thing we've talked about again and again, that is seeking. Seek, eat, speak. The first one, though, is seeking God. Seeking God. And so we seek God. One of the things with this, how, what's the key to right understanding? With one, it's to seek God. I mean, it, it's so obvious, but at the same time, here's, here's, there's two levels to seeking, though. One is that we would be in God's Word regularly, so we would rightly know what He says. Listen, the Word of God, it says, is bread for life, and we're to nourish ourselves with the Word of God, but we can actually read things into God's mouth that He never promised us. Even when we're reading God's Word and we're trying to be faithful and understanding what God says, we still easily bring things to God and assume we put words into His mouth and promises that He never gave us. So the other aspect of seeking that's always paired with the Word is prayer. Prayer. Because what happens in prayer is we come as we are. We read God's word. We come to him, though, as we are. We bring our longings. We bring our pains. We bring our troubles to him, our assumptions, our longings. And we encounter God as he is. In prayer, we encounter God as both present. The God of the universe invites us to himself. He's approachable because of Christ, but then also he's powerful. In other words, in prayer, we acknowledge God is God, that he's powerful, and that also he calls the shots, that he's the king, that he's the Lord over our life, that he's the Lord over the circumstances. So seeking God in his word, not only, or in his word and in prayer is the key to right understanding. We need to not just keep a distance from God, but he invites us to himself to draw near, to know his presence. So here's the application. With all the disappointments, the troubles, the longings, the desires, all the misunderstandings and how they've percolated up, whether they're relational, material, cultural, 
take them to the one who is the king. Another way to say it is that prayer is you being willing to hand over the keys to your kingdom or your queendom. It's being willing to go to God and say, here are the keys to my life. Will you lead my life? I give you the power. Will you drive it? I give it to you. This next week is, again, Holy Week, and it's traditionally a time to examine, to reflect on what promises we tend to put into the mouth of God. To examine where we're disappointed, perhaps angry with God, and how it manifests with frustration with others. It's a week to cry out, Hosanna, God, save me, liberate me from my misunderstandings. Show me who you truly are as king. Because over the next week, we'll see Jesus will establish his throne, but it won't be in the way that we assume. Perhaps not even in the way we want, but it's the way we need. And he does it so that we can draw near and bring our misunderstandings to him and know him rightly. So this week, go to him. Let me ask this question, and I know this is one of those pastor questions, but I got to ask it. When was the last time you talked to God? We live in an age where it's so much easier to go and talk on social media, to vent, to go to others and yell and fight before we ever go to God. When was the last time you went to God and brought those things to him? What happens is if we'll go to him and we'll seek him, it could be the lead domino that brings healing to all these other areas of our life. So don't misunderstand the life offered you with Christ. But let your longings lead you to him. Bring them to him. And the true Jesus who we'll encounter next Sunday will encounter the true Jesus at the empty tomb. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for these truths. Lord, we, we do. We bring so many misunderstandings to what your reign in our life looks like. Lord, would you correct them? Lord, would you call us to yourself, Lord, where we're just fueled in bitterness and anger, and it's going outward and everywhere horizontally, but upward to you. Lord, give us the grace to bring that, even that disappointment with you to you. Lord, to bring our longings and our hopes and all the things, dreams, whatever category you may use or term to describe it, Lord, would we bring them to you and lay them at your feet. Lord, so that we would not live a life for months from now or days or weeks or years. We end up mocking you and contempt over you and others. But Lord, we would bring those things to you and you would, you would reshape us, realign us, conform us to your image so we would think your thoughts after you. And Lord, as we navigate these seasons of life, we would know what it looks like to follow you, to have right assumptions, a right understanding of who you are and your call upon us in this life. So, Lord, we might have a true peace. We might have a true security. We might have a true joy that comes from walking in your presence day in and day out through all the circumstances of life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.